All right, so we are in the book of Mark. We've been kind of moving through the book of Mark oh, uh, for the last nine months or so, and we're uh, about, you know, in chapter 9. Now, the, the first half of the book of Mark that, that we looked at was this portion where, um, and the overall theme of the book of Mark is that Mark was setting out to write an account of who Jesus was, the, an account of the real Jesus, and to, to make sure that there was an accurate account that was present there. But in the first half of the book of Mark, Mark spends chapters 1 through 8 remarking upon the nature of, of Jesus, that he is this king that has, that has come. He is the promised Messiah, that in the, in the Jewish mind there was anticipation for this deliverer who would come and who, would, who Scripture said, would, would free them from their oppressors. And at this time, they're under the oppression of the, of the Roman army and uh, the, the empire of Rome there, and they have opposition um, all over the place. And so the, in, in their minds, this is what they're experiencing. And throughout their history, they've always been oppressed. And so they have been waiting for this deliverer to come, this, uh, this Messiah, this Savior to come. And so Jesus comes on the scene fulfilling the prophecy of the Messiah. And so they, the, the people are rightly beginning to kind of understand, uh, you know, and, and recognize Jesus is this Messiah. But interestingly, what happens is every time people seem to kind of get a glimpse of understanding Jesus as the Messiah, he tells them not to say anything, you know, and, and at the, the middle of the book, when uh, Jesus is asking Peter, Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter makes that, that grand confession, you are, you are Christ, you are the Messiah. And he rightly recognizes there that, that Jesus is, in fact, this promised a figure that is coming, even there in that moment, Jesus tells him not to say anything. This is kind of the first moment where Jesus, uh, where someone rightly kind of recognizes who Jesus is. But what happens there from that point is the, the book kind of turns, it's a pivot point in the book of Mark, and now we're coming to the second portion where Jesus is seeking to teach his disciples and, and show the world, that he is indeed this promised Messiah, but he's not just this promised Messiah who's going to come and overthrow this, uh, you know, the political oppression that they feel. He's not going to come and give them back this earthly kingdom, but in their minds, uh, which, which was expected, but what he is trying to do is establish with them and redefine that the Messiah is a figure who lines up with this uh, suffering servant that is promised in the book of Isaiah. And so Jesus is trying to, to help them understand and to show them that his job was to come and to suffer, to come and to die. And so since that confession, Jesus has, has set his focus upon Jerusalem, set his focus upon the cross. And now, again, this is probably the second or third time where he's saying very plainly to them where he's going, that he's going to suffer and die. And, and so the second half of the book is dedicated to that understanding, uh, the purpose for which he's come. The first is that he's the fulfillment of that figure. And now in the second half, we see that Jesus is the suffering servant. He is the, both the, the, the Messiah and the servant. He is the one who would come and overthrow, you know, the, or free them from oppression, but he would do it through his own death. So let's look at our text this morning. We are in verse 33, or excuse me, 30. And 
what happens here in verse 30, Jesus is just coming off of healing this boy. He's cast out a demon from this child in uh, verses 14 through 29. And now we come into this text where Jesus is moving on from there. He's, he's passing through Galilee and he's making his way toward Jerusalem. In verse 30, it says, they went on from there and passed through Galilee and he did not want anyone to know for he was teaching his disciples saying to them, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed after three days, he will rise but they did not understand the saying and they were afraid to ask him. So the first thing that we see here is Jesus is passing through Galilee. Throughout the first kind of portion of the book, if you kind of mapped out where Jesus went, it just kind of looks like, you know, it looks like those experiments where they gave like booze to like snails and they just went like crazy drawing like their lines all over the place. It's like there's no rhyme or reason to where Jesus is going in the first half. You have no clue. Like if you if you tracked out like his movements, it's like there's no logical reason why he went here or here. It's just a bunch, you know, it's like a big scribble. But now in the second half, it's very purposeful. It's, you know, he's making his way toward Jerusalem for the purpose of dying. Now, he, he's making his way there, and you'll see that phrase kind of pop up throughout, and we've even kind of begun to see it in the past chapters, but this phrase that comes up on the way, on the way, it starts to pop up. You'll see it, uh, you see it later in uh, verse 33, he asks them, what were you discussing on the way? And then in verse 34, but they kept silent for on the way they had argued. What Mark is doing there and, and what Jesus is, was implying there is that he now has purpose. He is on the way somewhere. In the past, it, it, you know, it hasn't been such. But now he has set his, you know, he has set his, his focus upon Jerusalem. It, it, Luke 9.51 tells us even further. It says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He had purpose. But the phrase on the way has to do, it goes back even further, and it links to what we even saw in the first chapter of the book of Mark, where it talks about, uh, you know, John the Baptist coming and preparing the way. And the way, speaking of this way to the cross. In, uh, in the book there, or in the beginning, in the very first chapter of the book of Mark, it says that John is one who prepares the way of the Lord. And what he's doing there is quoting from Isaiah 43. In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Now what's happening here is that as they're preparing this way, as this focus is kind of coming uh, you, you know, the focus is coming clearer for the disciples and for, you know, and Jesus knows where he's going. This figure, John, who has come before him, who is prepared the way for him, much like a king, when he was going to set out to go somewhere, he would send people before him to prepare the way, to clear the road. That he would, he would clear out any stones uh, and large boulders out of the way so that way his carriage could roll through and, his, and the horses and the army that accompanied him to keep him safe would be able to move freely to the destination. And so they would clear a path. There was a point A, a point B, and anything in that way would be, you know, it would be a hindrance. And so what's happening here is John has prepared the way, as we have saw, uh, as he went before Jesus preaching, teaching. He was persecuted and arrested and ultimately killed. He went before Jesus. And now Jesus, going in that same way, on that same road, he has come. He has 
he's been preaching and teaching, he is going to be arrested and be killed. He is traveling that same path. Now, he did not want anyone to know where he was going. In the past, Jesus is kind of like, he's kind of made that purpose clear in the past, but now he has a specific reason. He's wanting to teach the disciples this, you know, to get them to understand the purpose for which he's come, because they've kind of been blowing it up until this point. He's spoken plainly to them, and every single time they don't want to hear it. They don't want to receive it. They don't want to get it, and so Jesus kind of keeps trying to, to go in secret and move aside from where people are so he can actually get them to understand and to, to uh, develop this in, in their minds. Now, he even, he even, when he speaks to them, he tells them very plainly in Luke 9, 44, let these words sink into your ears. He tells them, like, listen, let these words sink into your ears. And then he says, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. It, you know, in, in our text, and we look at it in the book of Mark, he keeps saying, you know, hear me or listen to this. Or, you know, it's just simple remarks. But in, in the book of Luke, it's very specific. Let these words sink into your ears. Let them find a root there. Let them go in and find root in your heart. And so what he's wanting them to understand, we see in verse 31. Here's what he's speaking to them. Saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. This is what he wants them to understand, and this is what they've failed to understand and to comprehend up until this point. Three things. The Son of Man must suffer, he must be killed, and he will be resurrected. Three things he wants them to understand. He is giving them three specific things and wanting them to reorient their mind around their expectation around what the Messiah was. He wasn't going to be this kingly figure who would come in and overthrow Rome, but he would be someone who would come, who would suffer, who would die and be resurrected. Now, he also notes there that he would be resurrected for their sake. I mean, it would be a bummer just to hear also like, hey, you're our leader and I'm going to go here and I'm just going to die. But he's also giving them hope. He's saying, I will be resurrected. He, and he's told them that every single time that he's mentioned his death. It's not the end, guys. I will be resurrected. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. But that's not the end. But they fail to listen. They fail to understand and to comprehend that. Now, when we discuss, when we think about Jesus, what's happening is when we discuss it with one another, when we're sharing with other people, when you kind of see, you know, those signs, you know, in people holding them up and trying to like evangelize with the signs and all like the crazy stuff on them, what's happening is everyone kind of just says like, Jesus died for your sins, which is totally true. But when we talk about the work of Jesus, we have to include the resurrection. Just like Jesus gave them hope, we can't leave the resurrection out. The resurrection is the most important portion of Jesus' work. It's not just that Jesus came and died and that, that was it, but that Jesus was raised again on the third day as he notes. We have to include the resurrection whenever we speak about Jesus' work. Here's why. 
If Jesus was not raised, he's just kind of like another person. He's just like another guy. It wouldn't be any different if I came in here and said to all of you, I love you guys all and I'm going to die for all of your sins. And I go out there and like a mob kills me and like, that's it. And it's like, okay, you're just like sort of like a crazy guy. And there's, we don't really know if that was like was really happened or, you know, if our sins are all forgiven. You're just another random guy who said some stuff and died. But it goes even further than that. The resurrection, it does a couple things for us. It, it proves some things and gives us um, hope as the disciples needed that hope as well. Jesus was raised to give us a future resurrection. Because of Jesus' resurrection, one day our bodies are, you know, will be resurrected, will return to life. Secondly, we, Jesus was raised to prompt faith within us. It tells us in Ephesians 2.8 that justification is by grace through faith, right? Now, that faith that we have there, it requires the resurrection of Jesus. And unless Jesus has defeated death, we could never have faith in him that is necessary for our justification. But lastly, it is that main portion there. We, we, Jesus was raised for our justification, Despite our, our usual understanding that the cross is the thing that does all the work, you know, it's the thing that's responsible alone for our forgiveness, Paul is very clear when we look at Scripture. In 1 Corinthians fifteen seventeen, he tells us, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Furthermore, in Romans four twenty four through 25, he says, It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. What happens is that when Jesus was crucified upon the cross, he paid for our sins. But when God raised him from the dead, it was the validation that God had accepted that payment. It was the validation that said, I receive that work. And because Jesus was raised, we can be raised as well. Jesus is teaching here in the text to them, not only that he's going to suffer and die, but that he will be resurrected. He's teaching them, not only is he, not only is he teaching them that, but he's also teaching them and redefining in their minds that this is the will of God. He... In, in their minds, they would be familiar with the idea of this suffering servant that we find in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 53, 6 speaks of it. Uh, 53, 6 and 7, as well as verse 12, it says this, All we like sheep have gone astray, and uh, we have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, speaking of this suffering servant, the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he has poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Furthermore, in Isaiah 53, verse 10, he also says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He was put to grief. This is God's 
plan. And what Jesus is trying to do here in, in teaching the disciples is to get them to understand this has been a plan. This is what I'm supposed to do. Quit trying to get in the way and stop this from happening. You are hindering me. You are not helping me prepare the way to go to my ultimate, you know, reason for coming. But you're kind of keep putting stuff in the way and hindering me from doing the will of God. Now, this is kind of, their hearts are kind of revealed again. And this has kind of been their their position since the very beginning. They just didn't get it. Verse 32, but they did not understand the saying and they were afraid to miss, uh, to ask him. Now, the way that it talks about the disciples misunderstanding here, it's, it's really sad because what happens here is it just says that they, they didn't understand and then they were afraid to ask him. This was not it, it was them having a wrong view of who Jesus was because whenever they blow it, Jesus doesn't really yell at them. He like kindly comes alongside and ministers to them and says, no, you got it all wrong. There was one time when like Jesus yelled at Peter, but it was because like it was like a blatant satanic opposition to the Lord's plan. But when, when the disciples blow it and when we blow it, we need to kind of realize that we don't need to be afraid to come. We don't need to be afraid to approach Jesus, but we need to be able to come in all boldness because he is a gentle and kind Savior. This is how we know if, if you are understanding the gospel. This is how a good, a good kind of checkpoint in our hearts for, uh, for you know, um, whether you really get the gospel, whether you understand it. When you sin, when you blow it, when you do something, when you're starting to feel guilty, right in that moment, do you kind of put yourself in, you know, in like time out? You're like, oh, I blew it. And so like, I can't read my Bible for like, you know, a couple of days. It just feels like weird and gross to do that. Or is it something where you have the boldness and you approach the cross? Because the reason, you know, the reason that you sinned, what you did, what separated you from God is the reason that Jesus died to bring you near to God. And so when we rightly understand the gospel, when we sin, we don't run from the cross, but we run to the cross because Jesus has already paid for that work on our behalf. So the very reason for you running away is the total opposite of why Jesus died. Jesus died so that you were already separated from God and he died so that way you could come near. And so when you do sin, you can come with boldness knowing that Jesus was already punished on your behalf and so God doesn't need to punish you. God doesn't need to come and treat you in a way where you're going to receive wrath that would be due to your sin, but he has already poured out that wrath upon his own, his own son for your sake. And so when we sin, when we blow it, we can run to the cross in confidence because Jesus was already punished on our behalf. It's something that we have to encourage one another in because what happens is we want to take, you know, whether we know it or not, whether we're thinking about it, we want to take ownership of that. We want to become our own saviors. And so it's like, okay, well, I can't really go to God because I blew it. And then therefore I feel gross now or I was in error. And so now it's like, I got to do like, two or three days where like it starts to wear off in my mind and then I start to feel a little bit better, stop thinking about it. And then I can kind of ease back into like, you know, creeping in the door and seeing if God's going to like throw something at me or 
you know, and that's kind of the way that we do it. I, I know growing up, that's exactly how it was. I totally was, was operating under that way. It was just like, you know, my mom would ask me, or friends would ask me, like, oh, like, where are you reading today? It's like, oh, I didn't read. I just didn't because I knew that I blew it and I didn't feel like I could. But it was having a wrong view of the gospel. Jesus wants them to understand this here. We don't need to be, we don't need to be afraid when we err, when we sin, but we can run to Jesus in confidence. Verse 33, they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? Now remember that phrase, on the way, it's remarking of a specific purpose. They know that they're going to the specific place for a specific reason. But they kept silent, for on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Now this is kind of a funny sort of um, juxtaposition here, because what happens here, these two passages reveal the massive gap. There's a huge contrast between Jesus's humility and the disciples' total arrogance and self-promotion here. Jesus is preparing as the disciples and Jesus both move toward together this point where Jesus will suffer, be killed, and resurrected Jesus is preparing mentally. He, he is, you know, probably there walking with them and dwelling, you know. And, and in those times as they were walking, uh, the rabbi would often walk up in front and the disciples would walk kind of behind. And so he's kind of cruising there, preparing mentally, praying, asking the Lord to, to ready him. And he would have expected the disciples to do the same as he had been teaching them where they were going and for the reason that they were going there. But his mindset, Jesus' mindset, is on one thing, but the disciples, they are predisposed with their own recognition, and they want, you know, they're, they're kind of like power hungry here. They didn't heed Jesus' words that we looked at in Luke 9, 44, where he said, let this sink into your ears. They didn't do that. They maybe let it, they maybe like were in the same room when he was talking, but they didn't apply it to their heart. They, they didn't receive what he said. What happens here is, so he asks them, what were you guys discussing along the way? Like, he knew what was up. You know, he's God. And so it says that they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. This is totally like the kid, like they're acting like kids. It's like, you know, they're standing there. Your little kids are standing there. They got cookie crumbs all over. It's like, did you eat the cookies? And they're just like, like, I'm pretty sure you did, <laughs> you know, just no answer. No, the, the disciples' lack of words here, it's just a total conviction of what they have already done. They know that they did something they weren't supposed to be doing. Now, contrast this here with Jesus. Jesus is preparing to die. He's, he's mentally getting ready. He is coming to a place where he is submitting this great anguish of his soul. And later we'll see in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before he's about to die. You know, he's like, it's so t intense that like he's sweating drops of blood. And here along the same lines as they're walking, the disciples are having an argument over who's the greatest. This is it's like the worst. It's like the most humble and the most selfish and proud. They're, they're having this you know, fight over their spiritual comparisons because their mindset was still 
we're going to have a kingdom. Jesus is going to overthrow Rome, and then I'm going to have a throne next to Jesus, and you're going to get one. And, you know, oh, I was there when uh, I was up on the mountain with Jesus when he was transfigured, and I got to see Moses and Elijah. And then they come down, and they're like, well, you weren't even able to cast out the demon. And I, you know, and I came the closest, so therefore I'm better than you. And they're having like this big old argument over stuff that Jesus was the only one who enabled them to do that in the first place. They're having these dumb battles, but, but it seems... In the moment, in hindsight for us, it seems that way, but how often does this happen with us? We, we kind of draw these, you know, unseen lines of spiritual comparisons with one another, not only with people within the own church, but with other churches. One church, oh, they're a more spiritual church because, you know, this or that, or, you know, they don't do things the way that we would have done them, and so therefore, there's a great danger in spiritual comparison it creates division. Paul remarks on this in 2 Corinthians 10. He says, uh, not that we dare classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, people who are talking themselves up, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. Paul's saying that if you are someone who is comparing yourself to another person, if you're comparing, you know, your works or your faithfulness in in serving the Lord or, or in what you're doing, even, you know, in your job or, or career, what he's saying is you don't have understanding. You're without understanding. And when you do that, it creates division because you see yourself as superior to others. The only reason that we make comparisons is to find out which one has more, which one has less. Even if it's a totally, uh, you know, objective comparison, you're still drawing conclusions from that. But what Jesus is going to teach them is that you're all on the same level. You're all bankrupt and you're only good because I am good and I have given you my righteousness and taken your unrighteousness. In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul goes on, you know, we've talked about this in speaking of the body of Christ. We talked about this in the past week about the way that we deal with things as comparisons within the body, as we're all gifted individually and differently for different portions of the of the body. Verse uh, 18 of 2 Corinthians 12, but as it is, God arranged the members. God did it. God put it together. So he knows what he's doing in the body, each one of them as he chose. God did it. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again to the uh, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. Right? We kind of came, we talked about that in past weeks. It's this idea that you cannot just throw any of the things that seem to be weak to you out because God appointed them. He put them in a position and they are indispensable. Not they're smaller so we don't have to deal with them less or we have to, you know, we don't have to give as much care to those, but every portion is valuable because God put it there for a specific purpose. This is what he's speaking of here. And so it's totally unwise to create these spiritual comparisons. And Jesus gives us, he goes on to elaborate, you know, how we should act and, and to teach them in verse 35. Look at verse 35. And he sat down and called the twelve and said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. 
So Jesus has been remarking about this suffering servant figure. Because in the Jewish mind, this had not been something that was synonymous with the Messiah. This, there was the suffering servant, and then there was the Messiah. But Jesus says they're the same, and their minds are like blown, and they're trying to comprehend this. They're trying to come to an understanding because the suffering servant was never associated in the Jewish mind with this Messiah. They never thought that this, this kingly figure that would come would be one who would be suffering and die, who would fulfill the role of Isaiah's suffering servant. And what Jesus does is he sits down to explain a little bit more about how this works, about how he's going to suffer. Also about how they should follow likewise in his steps. What he does in verse 35, he sits down and calls the 12. Now, when he sits down, what that was, it's, it's an ancient posture of teaching. It meant that when, when a rabbi would sit, usually all the disciples would stand, which like, I feel like that's a good way because I'm standing for like a whole long time here and everyone, you guys are sitting. We should do like some switch-ups every once in a while. I can sit and you guys can all stand. Maybe keep, uh, you know, keep it real. So it's a good system. Uh, but when, so when a teacher would sit down, it meant that he was about to instruct in an authoritative manner. And so here, Jesus sits down. He calls the disciples to himself in this uh, rabbinic kind of method, in this idea of telling them, I'm going to teach you something. I'm going to teach with authority now. Um, which is kind of the case every time Jesus taught. But then he speaks to them and he says to them, if anyone would be first, he must be the last of all and servant of all. It's interesting how Jesus does this because what happens is they're having this argument. He's like, what are you guys talking about along the way? And they're like, everyone's looking down at their feet. It's just crickets. Nothing. And then he speaks, hey, come over here, sit down. Or, you know, come over here. And he sits down and he's like, and, and as a parent, you just know, like, you're about to yell at some people. You know, you're about to yell at your kids if that's going to happen. They did something and they're not going to, like, deal with it. They're not going to explain. But Jesus doesn't yell at them. He doesn't yell at them. He teaches them. He doesn't sit down. If anybody had like a reason to yell, he's like, I'm going here to die. I've told you why we're going here. And you're having an argument about who's the greatest. And you guys haven't done anything. You've only kind of had failures. You know, for the last, you know, every, every single time we've gone somewhere, you're blowing it. And you're arguing about who's the greatest. And you actually haven't done anything yet. He could have just totally laid into them and let them have it. But he doesn't do that. He has the opportunity to do that, but he calls them and teaches them. Now, when he does this, it's interesting what he says. Because he doesn't say, you guys have it all wrong. You guys have it all wrong. You shouldn't be great. Don't be great. He says, if you want to be great, you guys, you guys want to talk about greatness? You guys arguing about greatness? You want to know what's going on? He doesn't reject this idea of being prominent or great, but he redefines it. He says, if you guys want to talk about this, all right, here it is. If you want to be first, here's how you get there. I mean, I imagine that he said it and there was like a long pause, like, if you want to be first, and then they're just like, wait, what? And then goes on, he must be last of all and servant of all. And it's like, wait, what? That doesn't make sense. 
And he goes on to, to, to explain to them, to, to demonstrate to them. The issue here is not so much whether the disciples should want to be great, but the manner in which they achieve their greatness. Jesus says, go ahead, be great, try to be great, be as great as you can be, but here's how you get there. He says he has no problem. Jesus, he's explaining this. He says, I have no problem with you wanting to be first, but the way to achieve being first is by being last. And then he goes on to further remark, not only do you have to be last, but you have to be the servant of all. Now, that would have been a pretty offensive sort of statement at that moment because the word servant there refers to this personal devotion in service. The Greek world generally considered servants as that term to be demeaning and, you know, it's sort of like an undignified sort of, uh, you know, occupation. The, the philosopher Plato, he even remarked upon this. He says, how can a man be happy when he has to serve someone. This was the, the mindset of the day. This was the, the understanding. How can a man be happy when he has to serve someone? And later, you know, you kind of find out in, uh, in history, Plato maybe wasn't like the smartest with that statement because Bob Dylan kind of comes around with his own song and he's got to serve somebody. And he, he kind of like, he's like, it's either going to be you know, Satan, or it's going to be the Lord. And he kind of gives you the, three, the two choices there. It's like, bam, kind of one-ups Plato for the moment. And, but, but it is the realistic understanding that we need to consider. You have to serve somebody. And it wasn't something that was popular in the mindset of the day. It, wasn't, it was something that would be considered offensive. But yet, Jesus says, if you want to be great, you got to be, you got to, you got to be last. If you want to be first, you got to be last. And you have to be the servant of all, not the servant of the people that you like want to serve or you, you happen to enjoy serving or who make it easy for you to serve, but servant of all is what he communicates. Now, what does this look like? How, it's, a, it's a charge that Jesus is calling us to do. If you want to be great, if you want to be first, you got to be last. If you want, you, you know, you need to be the servant of all. How does it, what does that look like for us? Like, how do we even um, have that sort of heart? How do we know how to be that servant? Well, Jesus is our model. Jesus is the one that we look to for this understanding of how we love and serve others. Philippians 2, uh, turn there with me, Philippians 2. If, if you're not familiar with Philippians 2, like, it's pretty much the answer to, like, a lot of things. So if uh, you just put, like, a permanent bookmark in Philippians 2, uh, if you can, it'll, it'll definitely help you out quite a bit with, you know, your understanding um, of a lot of texts of, of Scripture. Everything kind of refers back here. Philippians 2. How do we know how to be the servant? Philippians 2, starting in verse 1, going through verse 11. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. So Paul's calling them to this. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. This is the idea of servanthood. Let each one of you 
look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. So it's not just throwing your own interests out the window. It's just looking out for others' interests as well. And then in verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. You have the same mind of Christ because you are redeemed by Christ, is what he's saying here. Who, through he, though he was in the form of God, did not consider or did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What what he's remarking there is is Jesus who was the one who should have been served. He put off his own, uh, you know, right, you know, worth to be found in the same likeness as God and came in, in, in our image. He came in sinful flesh. And not only did he come to serve, but it, it, not only was he killed, but it says that he was killed the worst death, the death of a slave, the most shameful death that you could die. He went all... All the way, it's the worst, the most shameful way that you could go is the way that he went. The one who deserved the most was killed in the most shameful way. He is our model there. And this is what happens in verse 9. Therefore, because he has done this, because he has put off voluntarily his own, you know, ability, his own uh, image to be in the likeness of God. Therefore, God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is our model of service. Jesus is the one that we look to, and we're like, I don't even know what that looks like, be the servant of all. We look at this passage. We look at what Jesus did. He was the one who deserved all. He put off everything to come in a pretty bad form. When your God come into human form is, you know, not so fun. But then even to come and to serve humans and even to the death, even to death and the death of the cross. This is what we look to as our model of service here. So when Jesus says, if you want to be first... You know, if, if you want to be first, the way to be first is to be last, you know, to be the servant of all. When Jesus says that, he's really the one that's greatest in the kingdom. He, he's, he said he's the last and he's the servant of all. He's kind of remarking about himself here in this text. You know, in, in, uh, in the book of Mark, when he says, you know, you need to be the servant of all, he's really speaking of himself and what he's going to do. He was the one who was truly who was first, but he made himself last of all. He put himself to be very last, the servant for our sake. And so he is the greatest in the kingdom. Now, within that, you can't just, just, you can't just, you know, flip this magic switch and be like, oh, I'm going to be the servant of all. You need Jesus's empowerment to do that, to love with the love that he has. And that love that we talked about last week is that agape love where we make a decision to love somebody even when they're not lovable, even when we don't necessarily enjoy serving them because it's the servant of all, not the servant of those who we find tolerable and able to serve. 
This is what Jesus is speaking of here. Now, when we serve, when we take on this charge that Jesus has given us, we give the world a visible manifestation of God's love. We show that when we're able to demonstrate this, this is a manifestation of how God loves because we love with the same love that God loves. And this will get worked out within our community as we love and serve others and love and serve the world. And and we'll grow in this and we'll encourage one another and consider one another and spur one another on to love and good works in the same manner. What happens here is Jesus says it's okay to have ambition. It's okay to want to be great. But you have to be great in the things that matter to God, not in the things that matter to you, the things that matter to God. Be as great as you want to be, but be great in the things that matter to God. Be the servant of all. You know, give all. And nothing is more important to God than giving. And no, op- no, no occupation or lifestyle gives more of an opportunity to give than that of a servant. And so Jesus takes this and applies it to his own position, as well as to those who follow him. And so we all, within, within the community, we all have an opportunity to be great through participating in what Jesus has called us to do through serving others. We, ha- we all have the opportunity to respond and to be great. It's, it's, not that, it's not that only one can be you know, great in the kingdom of God. All can be great if all want to be the servant of all and all want to come in that way. Of course, you know, we're not going to be all as great as Jesus, but we can, it's not like, oh, there's too much greatness and there's too many people serving. And so like, we can only have like one great one. I love the simplicity of what Jesus is calling us to do because he, he lowers, you know, the playing field for everybody. He makes it so that way we can't have spiritual comparisons there. And he says, look, I'm the only one that has made you guys great, and I'm calling you to be servants of all and to serve and love one another, to take this on. It's interesting how the kingdom of God works. It's kind of the upside-down kingdom, of, as we've seen uh, throughout the past couple of weeks. It's, you know, Jesus is always kind of saying these things that are a little bit backwards. It's like, you want to save your life? Lose it. You want to be first in the kingdom of God? Be last and serve everybody. You know, you, we need to, you have a problem with, with Satan and sin and death, I'm going to come and I'll die. It's like, the kingdom of God often has these, under, you know, it often seems upside down. But when we obey Jesus, we find our greatest joy in seeing him glorified as it works out when it's something that doesn't seem like it should work, but it works because Jesus enabled it to. Jesus empowers us to do it, and Jesus creates fruit out of that. Now, verse 36. He took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. So he takes his child and puts him in the middle of them, and he picks up the the child. In in Judaism, children and women were kind of like extra members of society. They didn't hold a lot of prominence, and most of the society depended upon men. But here, this child is not used as an example of, hey, be like this little kid, but it's just a, a visible example of like somebody that you would actually 
you know, somebody that you would overlook in society. So when it says be a servant of all, it's like be a servant of the people that you don't even consider, like a little kid here. You know, he's using this child as an example, and Jesus doesn't just take this, this child and put him in the middle, and he's kind of like talking about him. But it's interesting, what he does is he picks this child up and kind of grabs him and takes him into his arms and puts him on his lap. In that day, that happened a lot when there was an official adoption ceremony. It's take him into your life, make him your own, treat him as if he was yours. This isn't my kid, but come and grab him, bring him up into your lap, adopt him, treat him as if he was your own family. And so he uses these kind of social, uh, you know, or cultural things of the day to remark more upon it. But what happens uh, even further with this is he doesn't just say, you know, receive the child, you know, uh, in my name. Of course, we're supposed to do that. But he goes on and remarks further and says, whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Jesus loves this kid. He values this kid. He wants to point out the value of all to him. He values all. And it's such a contrast, too, with what Jesus does with this kid, because just in the last chapter where we looked at with this kid with the unclean spirit, when the demon was possessing that kid, what happened there in Mark nine twenty two? it said that the demon often tried to cast the child into the fire, into the water to destroy him. How different a contrast here with the demons attack upon this child there and, and then Jesus bringing another child in and, and bringing him into his life and, and using him as an example of care for this child, love this child, those who are insignificant, those who are the little ones in society, those who are often overlooked, love them in the same way. Now, what he does there is an example he calls them to love the child in the same way. <clears throat> but what he also does is remark upon the fact that when you are loving and serving those insignificant ones in the same way in his name, you're not only doing it to that child, but you're doing it to him. And you receive God who sent him. You are ministering in that same manner. Jesus remarks on this in the book of Matthew, in Matthew 25. Uh, turn over there with me, and uh, we'll wrap up. In Matthew 25, Jesus is speaking here, and he gives an example of kind of this exact sort of lifestyle in which in which you're to live. When the Son of Man comes in glory, in verse 31, the Son of Man comes in glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on the right and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king answered them, 
Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one, uh, to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. What Jesus is remarking at there is he's saying, in serving others, you're actually serving me. In, in going out of your way to be the servant of all, you're actually serving me. And I like how he contrasts this here. In the text, he's speaking to those who are righteous, those who are inheriting the kingdom of God. They're already in and they're like, wait, what? When, did, when, when were you there? And we were doing this and we didn't know that you were there. This is the overflow of those people who know Jesus. They're not like looking out like, oh, that person, I better do it because like that person could be, you know, like I'm going to do it in their name. It's just a natural byproduct of loving Jesus, enjoying Jesus, and serving others out of that overflow. They, they were oblivious to the fact that they were serving Jesus in that. They were having the love of God that was manifested in their hearts as a result of enjoying Jesus. He continues, you know, to, to instruct them there by, by serving, you know, by serving others, you're actually serving me. Colossians 3, uh, 23, 24, whatever you do, work heartily as to the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. So when we actually serve others, we're serving the Lord. That's how we're able to be the servant of all, because we're not actually serving the people that are annoying to us. We're serving Jesus. We're coming alongside and to, to people that may be easy to serve or may be difficult to serve exterior on an exterior basis. But ultimately, when we're doing those things, we're doing those things unto the Lord. We're doing those things for Jesus's glory and not for our own, not for our own reasons, but because we want to serve him. What Jesus is remarking here on in the book of Mark is that the person who fulfills the needs of those around him is actually discovering along the way that they're actually serving Jesus, that they're actually helping uh, him. They're enabling that person to receive Jesus' love, to see it demonstrated, to receive that, as well as being, um, being used by God and serving Jesus. Now, he finishes up there with that remark, whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. As I was kind of considering this and I was reading over some material, one person, I don't remember who it was off the top of my head, but they were kind of remarking upon uh, how we should serve others. And they were kind of saying, think about it this way. Imagine that you were kind of just getting settled, you know, in, this, in your house for the day. And all of a sudden you had an opportunity. And it was like, oh, God wants to come and have a meal at your house. God want, you know, or God needs someone to go and run errands for him. And so you're like, oh, I'll go. I'll, I'll prepare a meal. Go come to my house. Come and be a part of what I'm doing. This, this person who was saying that, Our desire to serve the Lord in that manner should be equally in the same way when we consider others, when we want to serve others. The same 
the same passion that we would have if it was actually Jesus knocking on our door and being like, hey, can I eat with you? And then you'd be like, are you kidding me? Like, yeah, you can. This is nuts, you know? Or, hey, can, can you, like, take me over here or, you know, take me to a job interview or whatever? That same passion that we would feel towards, like, whatever we have to do to move things out of the way to accommodate our ability to serve Jesus is what we need to consider when we're thinking about serving others. If it was Jesus, you would be willing to like, oh yeah, let me cancel my appointments and like, let me move stuff out of the way and, you know, sacrifice as Jesus sacrificed for us. He had everything that was, you know, some, worth so much, but yet he put it off. It was things that he deserved. In that same way, this person was saying, we need to consider that as the Holy Spirit would minister to us, that it would lead us in it, to, to be radical in our mindset, how we can love and serve others. Now, lastly, very last thing, 1 Peter 4, 8 through 11, we'll read it and we'll finish. 1 Peter 4, uh, 8 through 11 says this, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. So like, above all, do that. Love one another. With that love that God gives, love one another earnestly. With that agape love, where you make the decision, I'm going to love this person. Since love covers a multitude of sins. And then it goes on, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, God has given you gifts for a reason, use it to use it, not to hang on to it. Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. You can't serve on your own. You need to do it with the strength that God supplies. Otherwise, you're not going to serve correctly. You're not going to steward your gifts wisely. But we do these things. We, we speak the oracles of God. We use these gifts for God's glory. It, you know, it says in verse 11 there, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, through the work that Jesus has done within us, has enabled us to be a part of his new community, his new body, his new creation. And so this is the charge that, that we receive, that we should love one another earnestly. And then out of that love, out of that love that Jesus has put in our hearts as we have purpose to love and serve others and one another here in our body, that we would do these things, that we would show hospitality without grumbling, that we would, you know, use our gifts to serve one another in order that Jesus would be glorified. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful again for your word, and we're thankful <clears throat> that you have led us um, in serving, that we can look to you as the model, Lord, that, that we don't have to consider you know, we don't even have a, a, a leg to kind of stand on in the, in the sense that we can wonder if we've done enough or we can't do enough. We can't outserve you, and you're our model for that. And so, Lord, may you challenge us. May you challenge our hearts. May you challenge our, our priorities that, Lord, we would be radical in how we love and serve others, that we would truly take on the mind of Christ, that we would not consider uh, ourselves above others, but that we would serve in the manner that you did, Lord. You put off your, uh, just your holy adornment, Lord, and came in the, in the likeness of sinful flesh.
Lord, you are our model for service, and, and we look to you, Lord, but it's overwhelming to see that. And so, Lord, we, we confess that we need your help. We need you to enable us to, to serve one another, to love one another rightly in the way that, that you have done for us. We want to do it, Lord. We want to be equipped to do it, but Lord, we can't do it without your help. And so, Lord, enable us to do it, Lord, to rely upon you, to wait for you to lead us in service. Lord, and we want those things to to flow out of our own love for you, our own time with you. Not out of doing things for you, Lord, but doing things uh, with you and out out of the overflow of the work that you're doing in our lives. Lord, we pray that you would protect our community from the attacks of the enemy, the lies of Satan that would come to seek and discourage and to isolate. Lord, but that you would give us greater unity for your glory. We love you, Jesus. Amen.